Today's scripture reading is John 2, 13 through 25. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews went to him, said to him, what sign do you show us for these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when, he, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Megan. Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Reed Kappel. serve as one of the pastors here, and um, it's a joy to be with you. Um, it is a true honor to open God's word together, and so whatever brings you to church today, uh, whatever burdens you carry, questions you have, um, my hope and prayer is that we would all be found by the God who has come to be with us, who pursues us, who chases us lovingly so. And so as we uh, continue in worship and turn to God's word. I want to pray for our time um, in worship. So let's take a moment to pray together. Father in heaven, in this moment, Lord, I, I personally, I just feel uniquely in need of your provision uh, for strength, for, for stamina, for endurance as we, as we come to this time, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would meet us, um, even in our weaknesses and in our deficiencies, uh, to show us the fullness of your love and grace towards us. Lord, I do thank you for the gift of each and every image bearer in this space, joining us online. I pray, Lord, that we would, in this time, hear from you. I ask, Lord, that you would do only that which you can do. Lord, I am, I am not capable of of revealing truth apart from the work of your spirit. And so would you, by the power of your spirit, awaken us to the beauty of who you are. May we behold, delight, believe, and rejoice in the good news of Christ Jesus, our King, who has come to be with us and who stands at nothing to remove any and all barriers that keep us from seeing you and knowing you. And so, Lord, in this time, would we be encouraged, strengthened, challenged, and comforted simultaneously, and would you receive all the glory in this time of worship and praise? We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, our King, and for his glory. Amen. Jesus flipped over tables. That's right, that's right. It's like, like, so if you're, if you're with us last week, uh, I began my sermon with this simple statement, Jesus turned water into wine. 
and realize, like, I, ha- I have no need of, a, of another introduction. I don't need to, like, build tension. Uh, that basically does it for me. And again, we come to this uh, following text, and we see Jesus doing something that really requires no other introduction. Jesus is kind of doing my job for me uh, in creating this tension. I mean, what is going on in comparison to what we saw last week, if you're with us, at the, the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine at Cana, to now Jesus being in the temple, flipping tables over. What is going on? I mean, you're probably wondering what, what, what has happened? What's changed? Like, where did like winemaking party Jesus go? And, and where did like whip-wielding table-flipping Jesus come from? Like, what has happened? He seems like a very different person. Jesus goes from being the center of the party at Cana to being kind of in the center of the ring, if you will, um, in the temple as he's like what appears to be acting in very erratic, kind of violent behavior. What, what is going on? How do we make sense of this? And I'm not quite sure, so let's just go to John 3.16 and call it good, and we'll go home. So uh, in all seriousness, this, this text is a very important text, but it's one that requires very careful examination. It requires very detailed attention and also proper application because it is high on the list of passages that Christians have used and abused to justify unloving and sometimes ungodly behavior all in the name of standing for truth. The, the argument kind of flows like this, like, hey, who cares if I upset people? Jesus flipped over tables in the temple. And, and we'll, we'll get to this in a minute, but, but as we've seen thus far, if you're new with us, one, we're glad you're here. Uh, we've been journeying through the gospel of John, and what we've seen thus far in John's gospel is how John reveals to us a truth and a story, but then behind it, there's, there's always a meaning behind the meaning, a story behind the story. And again, in this account of Jesus flipping over tables, casting out the money changers with a whip, there's a story behind the story. There is always something behind more to the stories and the person of Jesus himself. And because of that, there is more to this tirade in the temple uh, than what we might see at first glance. And so, so when we look at Jesus seeming to respond in somewhat of, of anger, what I want us to see, the one idea that we look at as we see Jesus in the story is this. The anger that love demands always makes room for love. The anger that love demands always makes room for love. And so however we understand the love of Jesus and the anger of Jesus in this story, what I want us to see as John unfolds it for us is that the anger that love demands always makes room for love. And if you've ever loved someone or something, you you know that there is a proper and appropriate level of anger that love often demands. I mean, if, if my wife and my children were attacked and accosted or um, uh, abused in some way, and I was not angry, you would wonder what's wrong with me and if I actually genuinely loved my family. There is a level of anger that is to be produced when we love something. We all know this to be true in some way, shape, or form, but in order to understand the anger of Jesus... We have to understand the love of Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles open, I encourage you to do so, whether, whether paper or electronic. And, and as a side note, I would encourage you to have a Bible with you, not, not simply so that we can follow along the text, but it's also a way to just be engaged in the sermon. We want this to be a, a shared experience together. So John chapter 2, paper or electronic Bible, have it open, and we're going to walk through the text together. And so verses 13 and 14, we see the context of this interesting story of Jesus. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. Now, as a little bit of just kind of context, there's some debate about when this story actually takes place in the life of Jesus. Because, see, John records the temple clearing story early in his gospel. The synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have it recorded later uh, near the crucifixion narrative of Jesus. And there's a lot of debate as to, like, why that means. Are there, are there two different temple clearing stories? And, and we, won't need to, we don't need to get into the detail of that, but I mean, scholars agree that there's no, there's no discrepancy or contradiction in John placing this story early. In fact, John, he doesn't really follow the same kind of chronological order that the synoptic gospel writers do. It doesn't mean that he's wrong or, or coming from a different angle. He, he has a, a particular purpose in why he places stories in different places. And so there's a theological reason for why John is placing it here, but but. For our purposes, regardless of when it took place, there's no contradiction or discrepancy with John placing it early in, this, in his gospel narrative. So, so John tells us that this, this moment takes place during the Passover. So the Passover was the, the feast celebrated by the Jewish people, commemorating the time when God delivered Israel out of Egypt from slavery. We looked at that story a little bit a few weeks ago in the Behold the Lamb of God sermon that John the Baptist declares about Jesus. And so, so it's Passover, Jerusalem is packed, it's like teeming with people. I mean, there are dozens, hundreds and hundreds, thousands of thousands of Jewish people who've traveled to Jerusalem for this time. And so if you have not booked your Airbnb, like you are, you are basically out of luck. It is filled to the brim in this city. And it's peak season, okay? And so, so the temple is kind of, it's like Black Friday mode. Like it's just like, it's just busy time for the temple in Jerusalem, and in the temple, John shows us that there is this kind of makeshift market that has taken place where you have these uh, merchants who are selling animals for sacrifice for the Passover feast, and then there are money uh, changers who are exchanging money so that people can uh, buy goods and services. And so, so there's nothing inherently wrong with those practices. I think we need to be really clear here. There's nothing wrong with simply the selling of livestock for the Passover feast, nor is there anything inherently wrong with the work of exchanging money. Jesus is not condemning the vocations of business and trade. However, what John alludes to and what the other synoptic gospel writers mention is that there is a level of injustice and, and economic exploitation that's taking place in these exchanges. Uh, John references the pigeons. The pigeons were the animals that were set aside as the animal of sacrifice for the poor, for the financially uh, vulnerable. Uh, because it was, it was something that they could afford. And so what we see here and the other gospel writers make note of is that oftentimes, it's true today, it was true then, is that the poor tend to be the victims of injustice in various ways. And they're being exploited and they're, they're the victims of price gouging during this kind of religious festival and all of it taking place in the temple. And so no small part of Jesus' anger in this moment in, in how he responds no small part of it is tied to the way in which the poor are being taken advantage of. And Jesus saw this, and it caused his sinless blood to boil, if you will. Like there, there's an anger that he has towards the mistreatment of the poor, and we see him deciding to take action. And verse 15 is the operative text here. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. 
Now, before we jump to the conclusion that, like, it's okay now to flip over the Monopoly board, you know, when you go bankrupt from landing on boardwalk, uh, we need to understand why Jesus is acting in this way, responding in this way. This is not, as some people might think, a knee-jerk reaction. Like, like, just picture in your mind's eye, like, what is Jesus doing? Like, in your mind, do you see Jesus kind of hanging out with his friends, and they're walking to the temple, and he's like, what is going on here? Or, or do you actually see Jesus observing an activity that he has seen year after year after year? Jesus has come to Jerusalem year after year with his family to to celebrate the Passover. This is not a new activity. This is not new information for Jesus. He has seen this kind of behavior since he was a child. And so he's not responding in the heat of the moment, reacting in this kind of uncontrolled outrage. He has been preparing for this and has had years to know how he would respond at the appropriate time. Jesus is not flying off the handle, but rather his response and actions are very calculated. They're very controlled. They're deliberate and intentional. He knows what he is doing. And this is further evidenced by the fact that Jesus doesn't just like instantly react, but he takes time to gather cords to make a whip, which, you know, takes a little bit of time, you know, and so like Jesus, like in my mind, I see Jesus kind of in the corner just slowly winding these cords together, just like, you have no idea who you're messing with. That's kind of how I kind of picture this. But, but in this moment, Jesus, Jesus, he doesn't bring his own whip, okay? So like even if there was like a conceal and carry policy in the temple on whips, Jesus is not like walking around like Indiana Jones brandishing a whip with him. He, he makes these cords and fashions a whip. But also very important to keep in mind, because in in our mind's eye, we might be thinking that Jesus is using the whip on people. Jesus does not use whips on people. I mean, when we understand the posture of Jesus, who is gentle and lowly, but still responding in a very wild manner in this sense, that the whip is used for the animals. He's, He's casting out the animals in such a way to create like a stampede to get everybody out of the temple. Jesus is not attacking people. He is casting out the animals in such a way that that creates a stir and a stampede to get everyone out of the temple. And in this moment, what we see is that Jesus, in trying to drive everyone out, he is not simply acting in anger for anger's sake, but rather what he is doing is that his anger is flowing from a love that he has for the purpose and the design of God from the very beginning of time to draw people unto himself. Jesus is not simply acting out in anger to show people how angry he is. Instead, in this moment, Jesus' anger is displaying his love because the anger that love demands always makes room for love. And I want to explain what I mean by that. If you don't understand the purpose of the temple and the way in which it's laid out and designed, you may miss some of this imagery. Because the space where all of this is taking place is in the outer courts of the temple. This is an artist's rendering of what the temple looked like at this time. And so you see that, that, that large open area, those are the inner courts inside the temple. It's referred to often as the court of the Gentiles. And this open-air space was the only place, the only part of the temple where non-Jewish people could gather in prayer and worship. It was the only place they were permitted. In fact, uh, the Jewish people had created signs to communicate in a little bit too harsh of a language of what uh, what these courts were designed to accomplish. And one such sign was found in an excavation, and the inscription says this, 
No foreigner is to enter within the forecourt and the, the balustrade around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. And now, so again, this is this warning sign communicating that like, hey, there's really only a certain kind of people who are welcome here. And so this is in many ways kind of this this excessive distortion of what the temple was designed to be, as well as what the very heart of God is, a heart for all peoples to be brought to himself. And so, so what we see is that the covenant people of Israel, rather than fulfilling their role of being a blessing to all the nations to be a light of salvation to the outsider Gentiles, they kind of distorted the purpose of the temple. And instead of seeing the temple as a sign pointing to God's heart for all people, the temple had become a legalistic and even nationalistic symbol that kept the bad Gentiles out. But on top of that, the the other part that made this so infuriating for Jesus is that the very place that was specifically for the Gentiles had been filled up and occupied by all of these merchants and money changers to the point that there's no room for the Gentiles to even gather. And so part of why Jesus is responding the way he is is that there's now no longer room for the outsiders to be brought in. And as a result, Jesus decides to respond and make room. That is what causes Jesus to react in the way he does. That is what causes him to act in loving anger. Because Jesus knows the love that his father has for all peoples. Jesus understands the mission that he and his followers are meant to accomplish and being a blessing to all nations. And he knows the blessing that comes when the outsider is brought in to become a beloved insider through the love of his father. And so again, when we see and understand what Jesus is doing, we can understand this idea that we're looking at, that the anger that love demands always makes room for love. It always makes room for love. And and this is so vital for us to understand if we are to understand how we respond in anger in conversations and relationships and moments, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, because we so often, again, see people using this text to justify outrage, to justify vilifying and using inflammatory rhetoric against those who disagree with us. And I want to just take a minute to to speak to our anger and how we understand it. As I mentioned, this this passage is used and abused in many ways to justify unloving behavior and sometimes even violent acts. It's a common justification we see on social media, especially during kind of election season, like, hey, Jesus flipped over tables in the temple so I can be a jerk to you on social media. And that's kind of how it's used at times. The, The logic of the argument kind of goes like, it's okay to use inflammatory rhetoric on Facebook because Jesus flipped over tables. It's okay to suspend kindness and civility in conversations with people who disagree with me because Jesus flipped over tables. It's okay to flip over tables because Jesus flipped over tables. Like, like we, we kind of go here, and again, I, I'm not trying to deny that Jesus flipped over tables, but I think we need to understand why he's doing this. And, and let me say this first. There's nothing inherently wrong with being angry. I mean, we, we see it in Jesus. We, we see the Apostle Paul even saying, in your anger, do not sin in the book of Ephesians. But we need to understand that while, while anger is not, not necessarily an inherently an evil thing, we must be careful to avoid making the mistake of jumping to the conclusion that my anger is justified because Jesus was angry. This, is, this text is not a biblical justification for all anger in all instances. 
Second, th- this moment in Jesus' life is rare. I think that's the other thing we have to remember. Like, it's not like this is Jesus' like, modus operandi. This is not how he typically postures himself in conversation relationships. This is a rare occasion, so therefore, as followers of Jesus, this should be kind of a rare occasion for us. But lastly, and if, if we really want to use this passage as a justification for our anger at times, then I think that we need to, I want to suggest this flow chart for us to kind of run through uh, in order to decide, hey, should I post this? Should I say this? Should I respond in this way? Do I have the same passion for God's presence as Jesus? Do I have the same pursuit of justice for the poor as Jesus? Do I have the same desire to welcome outsiders as Jesus? Do I have the same ability to know the minds and hearts of others as Jesus? If you've answered no to one or more of these questions, then duct tape your phone to a brick and throw it into a lake. That's my recommendation. I, I, I say that a bit tongue-in-cheek, but, but really just what I mean by this is that we must allow our anger to be filtered through the lens of Jesus' love. Because the anger of Jesus is rooted in love for the outsider, for all peoples. And if our anger, hear me, if our anger is not leading us to make room for more love, then we should shut up. I'm not saying we should never be angry, but if our anger is not making room for more love for those that we are in conflict with, then we are not properly responding in anger. We need to reevaluate and potentially we need to repent. Because in this story, Jesus is looking at the ways in which the culture and the religious systems and customs had kept out those whom the Father wanted to draw in. And his love, which moved him toward anger, his love, which moved him toward anger, compelled him to do what he did in order to make room for others. As I was uh, working on this part of the sermon, I, I couldn't actually help but think of the story of, of Ruby Bridges, actually. Uh, Ruby Bridges, many of you know, Ruby Bridges was the first African-American student uh, who uh, desegregated uh, William Franz Elementary School um, in Louisiana in, in uh, 1960. And few of us know the kind of courage that this brave young girl had to endure what, what she went through in order to go to the school that she was permitted to go to by law. And even though she was, even though she was officially permitted to go to this school, the racist customs and common views of the culture essentially communicated and told her that she was not wanted or welcome, which is why she was in need of a, of a police escort for advocates to, to protect her and guide her to ensure that she would have room for her at the school. Just as the customs and the common views of, of the culture at this time attempted to crowd out Ruby from going to the school that she was permitted to go to, the legalistic and nationalistic practices of the Jewish people at this time in Jesus, in this story, were keeping the, the Gentile outsiders out. And Jesus' passionate love for the outsider, for the Gentiles, he, he couldn't take it anymore. He had, to, he had to act. He had to communicate the heart of his Father for all peoples. Which is why John records these words about the disciples' perspective of Jesus in verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is a reference to Psalm 69. 
And in Psalm 69, what we see in this context, what the disciples are remembering after the fact about Jesus, it's communicating how passionate Jesus is about the glory and the presence of his Father, whom he desires to to have all people see and behold and experience. Jesus is so passionate about the presence and the glory of his Father that he will stop at nothing to remove any and all barriers that stand in the way of anyone coming to his Father. In fact, if you, if you look at Psalm 69 briefly, verse 9, it says this, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches or the insults or the attacks or the accusations of those who reproach you have fallen on me. The context of this psalm shows us the depth of Jesus' zeal for the glory and the presence of God. His zeal for his desire to to see his father draw people unto himself. Jesus is so zealous that he will endure any and all attacks, insults, and reproaches if it means that outsiders will be made insiders through the love of God. Because this story, hear me, this story is not so much about Jesus clearing others out of the space he's in but rather it's about clearing out the space for others to come in. I'm going to say that one more time. This story is not so much about Jesus clearing out others in the space that he's in, but rather clearing out the space for others to come in. Because again, the anger that love demands always makes room for love. And in classic Jesus form, he shows us how there's even more to this story than what he's doing in the temple. It, it's it's kind of like those, those, those infomercials, but wait, there's more. That's kind of what Jesus is showing us here as he reveals the symbolism of the temple and himself. Look with me back at John chapter 2, verse 18. And so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build up this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So Jesus has some explaining to do, right? It was like the religious authorities of the day are like, hey, Jesus, uh, we got some questions. Like, like they're, they're kind of confused as to why he's acting this way in the temple. And brilliant Jesus responds by saying, would you, you would like to know? You would like to know by what authority I have to act this way in the temple? I am so glad you asked that question because I am the very temple of God. I am the manifestation of the very presence of God most high dwelling with his people. The reason I can behave and act in this way in the temple is because I am the very presence of Yahweh. And the religious, the religious leaders don't see that. They're, they're, they're not hearing because Jesus is kind of speaking in a, in a bit of a cryptic way because his hour has not yet come. What Jesus is doing here in the temple, he's communicating that he will not stand for anything that stands in the way of those who who, who the Father is wanting to draw to himself. What Jesus is doing in the temple, this is actually a beautiful picture, what Jesus is doing in the temple in clearing out all the junk that's standing in the way of the Gentile outsiders from being brought in, it is a foreshadowing. It is a preparation. It is a symbol of what he would do fully in accomplishing what he did on the cross, in removing every barrier, every obstacle of sin, shame, evil, hatred, and injustice that stands in the way of all of sinful creation before a holy God. 
The same Jesus who we see clearing out the things in the temple to make room for the Gentiles is the same Jesus who presented his body, which is the temple of God, on the cross to clear out all things that stand between God and all of sinful creation. This is not just a symbol of Jesus declaring his love and his, and his, uh, his desire for the glory of God. It is absolutely so. But it is a foreshadowing and a preparation of what Jesus does fully and definitively on the cross. For on the cross, Jesus offered his body, God's very temple, to be destroyed in order to destroy our sin that keeps us from joyfully believing and beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. He's trying to remove all barriers that stand in our way of seeing and beholding him. The zeal that Jesus has for you all and for all people, for you and for me, to know, to see, to behold, to delight, and to enter into the holy presence of his Father now and forever is what moves him to act in such a lovingly angry way because the anger that love demands always, always, always makes room for love. And that is what Jesus is doing here. And so friends, hear me very clearly when I say this. There there is so much, there is so much that stands in our way between us being reconciled to a holy God. There is so much that keeps us and precludes us from being reconciled to God. Our sin that destroys us, our religiosity that deludes us, our greed that spoils us, our national and cultural identities that blind us. There is so much that stands in our way of being reconciled to God, but hear this good news, dear heart, that while there is so much that stands in the way of us being reconciled to God, there is nothing that will keep God from coming after us. Amen? When you understand the the fullness of what Jesus is doing in this temple, foreshadowing what he does in his temple on the cross, we see that he will stop at nothing to remove anything that stands in the way of us receiving the love of the Father who has come to lavishly give us all things in Christ. For there is no shadow he won't light up, as we just sang together. There is no shadow he won't light up. There is no mountain he won't climb up coming after us. There is no wall he won't kick down, lie he won't tear down coming after us. And you know why? Because God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The reason why we see the beautiful picture of Jesus clearing out the temple whites, pointing to the cross, is that we know the good news that Jesus will not stand for anything that stands in the way of us receiving the love of the Father. Jesus' zeal for the Father and his love for us is such that he not only removed the sin that stands in our way of God, but he became our very sin in order to drive it away from us once and for all. And when this is our story, when this is our song, then we can understand how to be truly angry in the truest sense. When that anger flows from love, it always, always, always makes room for more love. And so if you are in Christ Jesus, let this truth fill your heart. Let it lead to abundant response and joy, knowing that you have seen the blessing of all barriers of your sin, of your shame, of your guilt, of your fears, of your doubts, of all of your aspirations to make yourself God in some way. They have been removed from you so that you might now see and behold the one who gave himself for you. And if you are not in Christ yet, my hope and prayer is that you would come to see this truth of Christ, the one who is recklessly in love with you and will stand at nothing to remove that which stands in front of you and God. And he will do so in order that you might be found, that you might be forgiven, and that you might be freed. 
Friends, there is an anger that love demands. But thanks be to God that the anger of his love has made a room for us to be loved and forgiven and freed forevermore. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that your son is so zealous for your glory and your presence. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this, this display of your loving anger that reveals to us how desperate you are to see lost sinners reconciled to a holy God. Lord, we thank you that you have drawn us near and that through your work and your life and your death and resurrection, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Lord, may we see your love towards us in removing all barriers that stand in our way. Lord, for those of us who are in Christ, may may our hearts be filled with this joy in receiving and delighting in what we have fully received in Christ. And Lord, for those of us who are far from you, for those of us who feel distant, would you show yourself to be the one who has come to remove all things that stand in our way? Lord Jesus, would you draw us to yourself? that we might find life in you, that we may be found freed and forgiven. And would you do this for the good of your people and the glory of your name. It is in the name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen.